Good morning, Indelible Grace Church. Thanks, June. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and have you stand for the reading of God's Word. <laughs> We're in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And um, happy fourth Sunday of Advent, also. Next week is Christmas, and I just wanted to mention that we will be meet. It's on a Sunday. Um, and so we will be meeting regular service time. There'll be no prayer at 10 a.m., but there will be the 11 o'clock service as, as usual. However, it'll be sort of a streamlined, I don't know if that's the right word, uh, we'll be spending some time in Scripture. Uh, Wade, Pastor Wade, who's in Arizona right now, will be leading uh, carol singing for us. So please come, bring everyone. Uh, love to have you. All right, so God's Word this morning out of Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1. This is God's most holy and infallible Word. Now the serpent who was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We'll stop there for today. Thank you. Um, Wait, let me pray for us, and then I'll have you sit down. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that by your spirit you would transform our lives, that we would be more like Christ as we drink in the gospel of what he's done. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So... I would really encourage you to listen to Wade's sermon from last Sunday. If you haven't, if you weren't here, you haven't been able to hear it. It really goes well with, it was out of Isaiah 8 and 9. It really kind of fits well with this text. And so if you're visiting this morning, first of all, I welcome you to Indelible Grace Church. And you may be wondering why on the fourth Sunday of Advent would this crazy pastor be preaching, you know, Genesis 3, now the serpent was more crafty. You know, fourth Sunday of Advent, it just doesn't seem like a really good fit. Um, and as I was preparing uh, to preach through Genesis over the next times that I'm preaching, I had, this is my fourth time to preach in Genesis, um, I just thought it would fit. And as I was preparing this week, I thought, this is not going to work. I was really sort of thinking, I need to scrap the whole thing and start over. But I'm trusting the Lord because as Wade preached last Sunday, 
What Wade did was genius. He painted the picture that Isaiah 8 and 9 does, which is it's really dark for the Israelites. They were about to be overtaken by the Assyrians. And then in chapter 9, it says, But as dark as things seem, O Israel, unto us a child is born. That's Isaiah 9. And so what Wade did was bring the real darkness of the text in verse eight or chapter 8 of Isaiah and then Isaiah 9 that we love to read at Christmas time. It really made sense. Um, we care about Christmas because darkness really exists. And so maybe a prequel to Isaiah 8 and 9 would be this text in Genesis 3. Because the darkness that the Israelites faced in their history began here. Without Genesis 3, there is no need for Christmas. It's the truth. You know, my rub with Christmas is this. So I'm an Eagle Scout. Um, And I give a lot of credit to my Scoutmaster who helped me so much through the whole process. But... Right after becoming an Eagle Scout, at least where I'm from, um, the next thing you do is you go through the order of the arrow. Anybody? No Boy Scouts? Okay, great. Um, So the order of the arrow is this thing where to get it, you do a lot more studying and reading, but a lot of it is about wilderness training. And so, and I, I have no idea about wilderness training. Like that's, even being a Boy Scout was hard. Like I wasn't a great camper. I'm still not a great camper. If you ask me to go camping, I'm going to ask, is it an Airbnb? Like I'm going to want my comfort. So to be part of the Order of the Arrow, uh, one of the end things they do is they take you out. They walk you into the woods and you don't know where you are for about an hour. They walk you out into the woods and they leave you overnight to survive overnight by yourself. I mean, it's one night, right? But it's at night, and they walk you out. You have no idea where you are, and you hardly have any supplies at all. And I can remember being in the dark and being really scared. I was, I think I was, I'm going to say I was 14, but I think I was probably 16. Anyway, but I was really scared, and it was really dark. I could barely see anything. And then all of a sudden, I could see a flashlight kind of far away, but I could see the light. And it was one of my friends who was going through the order of the air with me. And they had, you know, they had dropped him somewhere else, but I could see his flashlight on. And so all of a sudden I could start seeing flashlights kind of around because it's so dark. If there's one light, you can see it. Well, the reason I'm sharing this story is without the utter darkness and you feeling that darkness, that what darkness brings, for me at that time, it brought fear, being alone, and then seeing the light. It just brought life to me. It made me feel like I'm going to make it. And Christmas should sort of do that for us. It should, it should feel, apart from Christ's coming, bringing the light of the world, that the darkness, that you're not going to survive. And the truth is, we won't. So that, that's why Christmas is sometimes hard for me, because I feel like I don't always experience the darkness before the light has come. Like, you know, right after Thanksgiving, all the stuff's up at, you know, at Ross, and I just have a hard time getting into the fact that the dark was here in the light. So I don't know. That's I don't know if you have the same struggle in your life. So let me tell you where I'm going with this text, and you're like, really? You're you're just getting started? Yes, I am. Um, just so I don't bury it um, again. Genesis three fits into Christmas this way. Without chapter three of Genesis, Jesus would not have needed to come. 
what happens here in this narrative means that either humans remain in conflict with God or that somehow there's an olive branch. And thank God, Christmas, there was an olive branch. And I'm just going to, so I don't bury it. Verse 15 says, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And all commentators say that the next verse, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel is the pre-gospel right in Genesis that Jesus is promised right here. He will crush the head of our enemy. And that's why Christmas is so amazing because right in Genesis, it's foretold that, that someone, some anointed one, as we understood from the Heidelberg Catechism, that the anointed one Christ would come and crush the head of our enemy. So I want to say one word about Genesis 2 because I'm not covering Genesis 2, if you've been following or tracking with me in Genesis, then I want to say a little bit about um, Genesis 3, uh, just a little bit of background, a couple opening remarks, and then some ramifications of this text for us today, right, the application of it. All right, so that's where I'm going. First, I want to say a few things about Genesis 2. First of all, oh, first of all, Genesis 2 is a retelling of the human's being created. So in chapter 1, at the end, God created humans, and they were created in God's image. And he said it's very good. Then God rested on the seventh day. And then there's a retelling of the creation of humans. Now, why would Moses retell humans being created? Why, why would we need to hear that? Because uh, it, it goes on. It's pretty much the same thing, except for they get named, Adam and Eve. So on a discourse level, this really makes sense because the pinnacle of God's creation, the most important, it makes sense that Moses would retell it with more detail. It's sort of like if I come to you and say, how was your day, Jeff? And Jeff says, it was amazing. This amazing thing happened. And then he goes on. I would say to Jeff, you know, we need to have coffee because I want to hear about that amazing thing that happened. I want some details. You know, and then we have coffee and Jeff tells me, you know, he gives me a great story about the details. Maybe um, James Bond showed up and there was a winning of the lottery. I don't know, some great story. Well, that's sort of what's happening here. Humans are created, the image of God. And in chapter 3, we want to tell you the details of this amazing thing that's happened that God has done. So that's one on the discourse level. It makes sense that Moses would tell more details about this. Also, we need to get to know the first humans by name. It shows that God's not impersonal when it comes to human beings. When it comes to you and me, God is very personal. He created humans, Adam and Eve, personal people, real people with names, with faces, with relationships, with relationships with God. And perhaps the most important as it relates to Genesis 3, uh, at the end of chapter 2, uh, Adam and Eve, it says that they became one flesh, where Adam says, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, you shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Really important. That's, that's really important. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to help you see why. Well, first, because, because when the fall happens in Genesis 3, and it, it appears as though Eve is really the culprit, 
But Adam and Eve are one flesh, right? Chapter 2 says it. They are one flesh. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. All right, so let's, let's jump into chapter 3. So those are a few reasons why chapter 2 is there, giving us the details of uh, Adam and Eve being created. And now, um, just a couple things. I wanted to remind you that I'm relying a lot on Jack Collins and his work, Dr. Jack Collins. He's a professor. Um, he wrote a book on reading Genesis well. I would, that's the name of it. I would encourage you to get it. It's not super expensive. Um, if you need a copy, you can borrow mine. Great book. I'm taking a lot of things from him. So I know some of the things that come up when we look at Adam and Eve, first of all, is did they even exist? The Bible says they did. Jesus says they, they existed. Paul says they existed. So if you have those questions, Jack Collins helps to answer those very historically, academically. If you're interested in all the details of that, we can have a discussion about that. Um, if you're having those types of critical questions, I'm not so much going to get into those critical questions today. Some of you are like, wow, that's why I came to hear. Others of you are maybe happy about that. So a foundational framing today in Genesis 3 will be a foundational framing for the sex, the sexes, genders. I'd like to say a little bit about that. And then I'd like to say a little bit about what this text says about Satan, our enemy, uh, a little bit of theology, and then again the ramifications that I promise I'll end with. So a little bit of foundational framing from Genesis 3 about the sexes. And maybe the knives are sharpening right now as we're going to talk about gender. Um, I'm going to say the sexes about male and female. Some foundational things are right here. Something to notice right from the beginning um, is Adam's silence. There's a book uh, that was written in 1995 by a guy named Larry Crabb. Uh, I feel like he's the first one who broke this story. That, uh, as the text says, when Eve ate of the fruit, she also gave it to her husband. And the text says very clearly that Adam was with her the whole time. Adam is there. And he was silent. This one flesh, Adam and Eve, they were together And Adam, at the beginning, was silent. This is huge. Adam never steps in to take on the serpent, Satan. He leaves it all to Eve. They were a team, one flesh, to fight the enemy. Now, scholars and preachers seem to want to take this notion that Adam was silent to repaint a modern-day picture of manhood that dictates that we, as men, should be courageous, protective, we should care for our families, etc., and all against the walls of the devil. Okay, yeah, that's, that's not a bad thing. Certainly those applications, I think, are there. Yes, 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 yes. However, I'm still getting used to my iPad. It just jumped. I left my finger on it too long. However, what it really does, as far as the flow of the story, is it puts the betrayal of of God against God squarely and equally on the shoulders of Adam and Eve. This is the real equality of the sexes in Scripture. Both Adam and Eve, the one flesh, fall in the garden. It wasn't Eve acting alone. She and Adam were acting in unison, all of it, as one flesh. A quick word, what I'd like to hear from the church when it comes to wanting gender equality is a clear statement about how the sexes share equality in the most important factor of all. They are both fallen 
sinful, capable of overthrowing all for their own purposes. Both men and women in this world have egos. They're capable both of great sin and betrayal. Apart from the gospel of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit, the tendency of both sexes is to blame pass, finger point, to be silent in all the wrong moments, to be confused, to ask all the wrong questions, to have fear, pride, to betrayal, to betray God, to betray the self and others. Yes, I'm vilifying both men and women because I believe scripture right here in Genesis 3 equally vilifies, equally brings to a fall men and women equally from this text, from the beginning. Men and women are culpable equally for choosing to disobey God. Did I get that point across? I wish the church would say more about that. Now, are there differences between the sexes that Scripture highlights and defines? Yes. Even in this text, how Adam and Eve's mutual sin uniquely hits them is made evident. Childbirth later, thorns and thistles by the sweat of the brow later for Adam. Even later in the New Testament, Paul makes a distinction that Adam was created first in the order of things, which, of course, we see that. Coming first does bring its load of responsibility and care. Being born first, right? If you're a firstborn in your family, you know that brings a different load of responsibility and care. But also coming second has its burdens and care also. Paul makes theological statements about, for one, a church should walk from the vantage point of creational order, not equality or inequality. There's a difference. I'll just say that again. Paul talks about um, the church and how it should work from creational order, not inequality or equality. And there is a difference in that. I'm not going to unpack that, but I want you to think about it. So still in Genesis 3, there's utter equality when it comes to foundational rebellion of humans. Eve's fall and Adam's fall are, are 100% the same. Okay. So continuing with Genesis 3, what does this text tell us about our enemy, our greatest enemy? Because again, Christmas Christmas and its light and the joy that we've sung about already this morning, apart from our fall here in Genesis 3, apart from having an enemy, um, then Christmas really can lose its light. It can lose its sparkle. But Satan exists. According to Genesis 3, he exists from the beginning. Satan in the form of a serpent here. I'm not particularly fond of snakes. Um, it, it makes sense. To me, it would make more sense if Satan was in the form of a spider. That, that, for me, would make more sense. How many of you are more scared of spiders than snakes? Or is it equal? Or maybe you're not scared of any of them. I'm scared of both, frankly, but spiders. Um, so... Some believers want to think that Satan doesn't exist, so don't pay him any mind. Some believers want to blame uh, everything on Satan. That's not something we need to be doing. Some believers want to blame everything on themselves. The truth is, Scripture, it's all of it. Um, Satan is to blame. We're to blame. Uh, Peter writes that we definitely have an adversary, the devil. He prowls about like a roaring lion. So Satan does exist, just as Adam and Eve do exist. So what do we learn about Satan here? He wishes to make us enemies of one another is the first thing that you can take away from this text. 
Satan wants us to turn on one another. He removes the focus off of him and he pushes us to see ourselves and each other uh, and God as our enemies. Practically speaking, it pushes us to think um, things like, that man, he just wants to mansplain me. He wants to dominate me. Satan pushes us to do things like, to think things like that today. Perhaps we're wrong about that. Or if you're a woman, it pushes a woman maybe to think, um, he just wants to control me. Maybe he does, perhaps. But that's our natural pronation according to what Satan has pushed us to think about one another. So some of the things we get from Satan is that he twists and turns and lies and gets us to think those things about one another on a practical level. So theologically, Genesis 3 is original sin. That even if you say, well, I didn't sin the way Adam and Eve did here, still, you try to not sin the way Adam and Eve did in your life. Try to not disobey God. Try to live for a moment without the effects of the fall in your life. Go ahead and try. You experienced Adam and Eve type fall. You experienced the pushing in of the devil in your own life, even as you were in the parking lot probably today or trying to get ready to get to church today. It's hard to escape the original sin that has befallen all of us. And this text is a reminder that original sin um, is here And Christ had to come to crush it for all of us. So the theology of this text is that we don't escape just because we can say, did these people exist? Yes. But even still, this original problem, this fallenness hits all of us even today. So what are some things that we can take away from this text for practical practical reasons today? The first thing I think this text helps us to see about ourselves is that we're prone to question or dismiss God, like the first humans on the planet. So much of God's law and words we question. Typically, when I'm asking God about his law, typically the answer is yes. When I'm questioning him about something, most of the time it's, it's yes, I should obey. But we, like what's happened here in Genesis 3, we're quick to dismiss God and his word. We're, we're quick to reject it. We're, we're quick to ask questions about it that we shouldn't be asking. You know, most of the Bible is pretty clear. It says a lot of the same things over and over again, pointing us for centuries toward the one anointed Christ. So Genesis 3 also shows us that we're prone to fear and shame. Adam and Eve knew that they were naked. They had They saw that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves to cover themselves in verse 7. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves from the Lord. This is what you and I are prone to do even today. We're prone to fear. We're prone to shame. You know, there's a lot of academic work right now on the topic of shame. We're a culture that feels shame. We we feel that about ourselves, and we project that onto other people. Perhaps this morning you came to hear God say to you, who told you that you needed to feel shame about this or that? The gospel of Genesis 3 would beg you to come out of hiding, to come to God in Christ, to the one who will crush the head, who did crush the head of our enemy. 
So we are prone to fear. We're prone to shame. And in the context of shame and fear, we're prone to run away from God, hide ourselves, pretending that He can't see us or find us. I think we're a culture, if we just ignore God, if we just put Him to the edges, that He'll go away. He's calling, even today. According to this text in Genesis 3, we're prone to not wait on God. As I mentioned, when Satan starts to question things, both Adam and Eve, um, they wonder. And Adam never steps in. And they get very, very confused. And they, they could have said, Hey, Satan, wait. It's interesting questions that you have. But let's wait and let's have... God will be here soon. We walk with Him in the cool of the day all the time. So let's wait and ask Him. According to Genesis 3, we're prone to not wait on God. When things don't seem to be working the way we want, we run ahead. I'm prone that way. We're prone from this text to think that we know how God feels about us. The only... The only way for us today as 21st century believers to know what God thinks about us is to look to Christ. If you're ever wondering what God thinks of you, look to Jesus, the anointed Christ, who is the Son of God, the Beloved One, and that's how He looks and thinks about you. No matter what you've done or what I've done, the gospel of Jesus means that the banner over us is His love. Lastly, I think this text shows us that we're, we're, we're prone to confusion. I'm sorry, my, my iPad messed me up again. Yeah, so we're prone to anger and confusion about God, ourselves, and everyone else. We don't trust anyone anymore. Who can, who can we blame for this and that in our lives? And I would say... This is the biggest one for me, that I'm constantly looking at my own life and wondering, really, who is to blame for what I can blame my parents? I can blame my siblings. So many, I can blame the church. This text reminds us that we are prone to blame shift. I can blame men. I can blame women. I can blame kids. I can blame teenagers. I can blame the social media. I can blame God. Therefore, Christmas, with all our pronations to fear, to shame, to confusion, to anger, to blame shifting, all of it, the advent of Christ is so important. Long lay the world in sin and error pining from this beginning till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The only way Christmas brings a thrill of hope is if you feel hopeless in your life. And the gospel says this morning that you don't have to feel hopeless. Christmas says you don't have to feel hopeless. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. And as Genesis 3 reminds us, or hints at, the head of our enemy, sin, death, confusion, fear, shame, all of it, will be crushed in Christ in the gospel I don't really know what you walked in with today with all the busyness, with all the rush. I don't know where this text is hitting you, but I'm hoping that you hear that Christmas is so needed. And as you spend this next week leading up to Sunday, Christmas Sunday, that you would be reminded 
that all that ails you has been crushed in the gospel of what Christ has done for you, that you are loved today, that the light has come into the darkness of whatever you're facing in your own life, and that there's hope for your blame shifting. There's hope for the issues we have among the sexes, all the inequalities, all the misunderstandings. There's hope for the church. There's hope, period. The light has come. So we'll be partaking of the Lord's Supper, which is a great reminder that Christ has come, that he not only was born as a baby, but he grew up and he died for our sin, that in crushing the head of Satan, he had to die because the wages of sin are death. And the wages of sin were put onto us right here in Genesis 3, but Jesus has eradicated that for us and given us the hope of life. Would you pray with me and then we'll partake of the Lord's Supper and I'll be saying the words of institution. But let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word that reminds us how far we've fallen, but how good it is that Christmas has come and that we get to celebrate the light coming into the world. Even this week, as we're busy, as we travel, as we open gifts, as we wrap gifts, Lord, all of it, Lord Jesus Shed your light upon us. Remove our shame and guilt. Remove our darkness. Remind us that we're not surviving alone out in the middle of the woods somewhere, but that your light has come, bringing hope and peace. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.